And in fact, that's why you see some people very much against transhumanism. It's not that they're against using technology to help them or improve their lives. They probably love technology and use it all the time. They're just overwhelmed and they're frightened. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Feedback Loop, where we keep you up to date on the latest technological trends and how they're impacting the transformation of consciousness and culture from the individual to society at large. I'm your host, Stephen Parton, coming at you from Singularity University. My guest this week is Zoltan Istvan, most commonly known for his work with National Geographic, his book, The Transhumanist Wager, and his 2016 presidential campaign, where he drove across the United States in a bus shaped like a coffin. He's remarked that his time in the immortality bus during the campaign was his attempt to inject more transhumanist ideas into the political discourse, as well as bring greater focus to longevity research. In other words, he wants more science and technology in the government, and he doesn't want to die. For those of you who aren't familiar with transhumanism, it's largely a philosophical movement that is advocating the evolution and enhancement of the human condition via integration with technology. Now, I've personally read Zoltan's book, Transhumanist Wager twice now, as it's quite hard for me not to be deeply drawn into any book that combines two of my favorite subjects, transhumanism and philosophy. It's also hard for me not to compare Zoltan to the protagonist of his novel, especially since both spent years sailing across the ocean with little more than a boat full of books. Both operate from very libertarian stances and both are passionately anti-death. Obviously, much of Zoltan is imbued within his protagonist, and while this concerns many critics of his because of the novel's aggressive approach to shaping a better world, Zoltan admits he pushed his character into going too far for the sake of sparking a real-world conversation. And this very notion of getting the conversation around transhumanism into the mainstream seems to be Zoltan's mission. One he's doing a pretty solid job at, considering that it's hard to name a news network he hasn't appeared on. Some of the more hardcore podcast fans amongst you might even recognize Zoltan from his appearance on Joe Rogan's podcast. At one point, Zoltan references a recent article he's written about implants, which I'll link in the show notes so that all of you are able to follow up with some of his latest work. Also in the show notes will be our email address, singularityradio at su.org, which is where you can send any questions, recommendations, or other feedback that you might have. Also, please don't forget to subscribe, share, rate, and review this podcast if you get a chance, as it really does go a long way in ensuring we can keep this podcast alive. And a big thanks to those of you who have been showing your support and following our efforts thus far, as we've seen a major spike in audience growth just over the last few weeks, and that simply does not happen without your help. So again, thank you so much. And now I think it's probably time to jump into a conversation about cyborgs, religion, and death. So everyone, please, welcome to the podcast, Zoltan Istvan. Zoltan, thank you for joining us. Uh, I would love to just start off with a little bit about your extensive and varied background in journalism and transhumanism and politics. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so um, I guess uh, I began as a National Geographic journalist um, in my 20s. And that was really fun, but it sort of led me to a lot of conflict zones and war zones, which led me to not wanting to die because I saw quite a bit of horrible things. And that's sort of how I got involved into the futurist and transhumanist movements. You know, the transhumanist movement being, I think, largely about trying to live longer through science and technology. And um, so as a journalist, I was introduced to some things that made me really want to live a lot longer. And, um, you know, I wrote the novel, The Transhumanist Wager, uh, which sort of uh, did very well, became bestseller and all these other things and sort of launched my career as a public person in the transhumanist world. And because I have a journalist background, it was a natural fit for me to be one who constantly like writes articles and does a lot of media stuff for pushing the movement forward. And for you, what does that mean to to kind of be a champion of the transhumanist movement? What What are those ideas that you're putting forward and why is it something that's so important to you that you're willing to, you know, put your life on hold to drive around the United States in a coffin shaped bus and, and run for presidency and commit so much of your energy to it. Sure. Sure. Well, you know, I think, I think the big thing is um, I really do believe that dying is a bad thing. And, and as somebody who doesn't believe in an afterlife and is sort of secular, 
<clears throat> I find that um, you know living indefinitely through science and technology is the most important goal of humanity because while life is wonderful and we're here for a hundred years, uh, that's also a great tragedy to me that we have to die, that we have to be here and then disappear. And I have children and things like that. You know, I mean, I want to be around to see these things. And so we, you know, first and foremost, as as a person. I really associate with trying to overcome death through science and technology, sort of the main goal of transhumanism. And, um, you know, the novel, The Transhumanist Wager, is really kind of based on Pascal's Wager, which is, you know, in Pascal's Wager, you put your life ultimately into God, and that's okay. But in The Transhumanist Wager, you put your life into science and technology as a way to overcome death. And, um, you know, the book has led to running for president, has led to running for governor. I'll probably run for other offices. You know, I mean, there's just this whole movement about trying to spread transhumanism. Because you have to understand the most important thing to know about, like, let's just say America and the world is that 85% of people don't care about living dramatically longer because they believe in an afterlife. So if you don't believe in an afterlife, you really got to do something to make sure that you actually have this kind of life extended. And really, that's the basis for me about transhumanism. The basis of what I do when I go around campaigning, you know, when I go around running for office, it's really to say to people to change culture, to get them to say, we need to put money and resources into science and technology to live longer and better. Because I'm a firm believer that nothing makes the world better than science and technology. It's through science and technology that we have overcome disease, that, that we don't die from a cavity, that we're not living in jungles, that, you know, it's all this progress and we need more of it in order to, to be a better species and to, to be happier and less suffering and, and just to, to really, to, to see what's out there, go to other planets and everything else. But dying, dying is something that has to be eliminated. A lot of people would argue that the struggle of life, that the fact that we know we're going to die is one of the things that enriches it, that, you know, working, sacrificing for something is what makes you feel like you've earned it, which makes you feel like you have meaning. Uh, I know it's probably more of a cliche question that you you often get, but is there some part of you that wonders if we're pushing ourselves towards just a boring future that we're maybe stripping ourselves of that je ne sais quoi or that just essence that makes life worth living? So, you know, this is the fundamental philosophical question I get asked all the time. And, and it's a great one because honestly, it's a it's subjective. So everyone ha everyone's opinion is 100% valid. What I think people don't understand is really the anthropological idea um, of transhumanism. It's right now when you and I are talking, it's like we have three pounds of meat. It's in our brain. You know, it's our brain. It's on our shoulders. And that's how we envision the world. You know, whatever many neuromillions or billions of neurons we have firing, that's us. In the future, though, when we connect our brain, our thoughts to AI, and this AI might have the servers that fit into uh, I don't know, uh, this, the Empire State Building, our complexity as a living consciousness, as a living entity, could be dramatically um, more involved than what it is now. We have five senses right now. We might have a million senses when we're so much smarter. Our brain capacity could be a, a million times what it is now. Our IQ could jump to thousands and thousands. It's hard to know how far we can go. <clears throat> but one thing I can say with all that is it's not going to be boring. And it's not going to be boring because technology continues to expand. And as long as it's expanding, it's a brave new world for us. It's always going to be an adventure. There's always distant shores of consciousness as our brains get smarter and smarter. And that's why I just don't subscribe to that idea that, yes, in a perfect world, no suffering, life's going to be boring. It's not going to be boring. It may have no suffering, but it's, you know, there's going to be adventure. And that adventure is discovery of what we can become. So you see a new array of challenges that we unlock as we transition to a more maybe like cyborg uh, technological species. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, and, and there's going to be great challenges and some of those challenges probably won't go our way as, as that, you know, history hasn't always been kind to humans and uh, people will criticize technology and criticize the transhumanist movement and things like that. But I think ultimately speaking, we're kind of bound in a moral way to go down that path in the same way we were bound to to leave Europe and sail across the oceans and stuff like that. We're a species that's curious. <coughs> we're a species that wants to discover things. And I think that's critical um, about us, you know, and built into our DNA. And we're going to take that as far as it can go. So uh, I'm super excited, even if there are challenges, 
along the way, even if morals and philosophies and especially religions get conflicted over these things, it's, it's all part of the human journey. Are you concerned about the discontent that comes from that constant need to explore? You know, there's that, there's a lot of people who look for, you know, what some have called the fourth drive or the flow state, because it, in a lot of ways, turns off that voice that says you should keep finding more things to do. You should explore more. Uh, don't be content. Content is staleness. Staleness is death. Uh, do you, are you concerned that maybe this drive to constantly push outward is maybe stripping us of some of our ability to just settle in and, and maybe find some joy in our present state? Well, I, I think the flow ideas are wonderful and they can be very useful in applying them, but I think there's a balance. You know, I'm not saying every single, well, I kind of am saying this, but <clears throat> every single second should be dedicated to kind of making a transhumanist wager to overcoming death. Once we've overcome death, then we can have a very different story, a different uh, conversation about what it means to be alive. But until we have the specter of death hanging over our heads, it's kind of mute to me because I don't have a choice. I'm a ticking time bomb. I'm aging. I'm going to die. I'm going to become worm food and, uh, and, you know, dust in the universe. That's not acceptable after being this consciousness. So that's kind of the first priority. Afterwards, after we overcome death, we can have a conversation about what it means to be happy, you know, what it means to span the cosmos with our intelligence and unity and love and all these other things. But I think until we get over that hum, until the specter of death is not kind of constantly, we're enslaved to it, essentially, we, um, we probably should um, focus on that and then worry about the metaphysical things later on happiness, flow state, and whether we're too, uh, too uppity, I guess, you know, as a species. It's interesting you phrase it that way, because that makes me think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where, you know, the foundation is basically physical safety. Um, and until you're beyond that, you can't really move to the higher tiers of belonging and love and self-actualization. Um, but being that we're currently in that kind of state where we are so fearful, where our amygdalas are hyperactive, where it's a very chaotic socio-political environment right now. We're creating the technology from that mindset. And a lot of, it could be argued that a lot of what technology, a lot of what technology is coming about right now is imbued with that kind of fearful mind mindset. So are you concerned that maybe we're pushing quick, too quickly with the technology without first addressing those human qualities, or do you think we have to kind of get that looming specter of death, as you put it, uh, away from us before we can actually start self-actualizing in a way that will allow us to actually answer some of those questions, those more philosophical questions? Well, I think Maslow's the, the hierarchy of needs is, is a very important idea. And I sort of base many of my ideas on these things too. And to answer your question, um, I think, you know, we have to first make priorities and that priority is really to overcome death. I mean, I, I guess the very first priority is we, we don't want to be a slave to anything because in a state of slavery, um, you know, you, you don't really have choices. But the problem is that's really what it means to be <clears throat> alive is that you are a slave to aging, you are a slave to dying. So we sort of need to work that out before we work out all the other things. And I think um, it's really important to understand that if we can kind of overcome aging and overcome death and we will have time to do all these other things but for example i wrote a very controversial article recently about <clears throat> how life extension come takes a priority over the environment and um everybody got very mad at me said you know i, I i'm a former national geographic guy. i've written a lot about the environment i'm actually formerly an executive director at a major wildlife organization wildlife wild data as well so i've done a lot for the environment love animals love nature all these other things but my life and humans' lives comes first. And that doesn't mean you need to go destroy the planet, but I think we also need to take a step back and say, preserving people's lives is the most important thing that's out there. And um, that's, you know, a radical take, gets me in trouble, but yet we need to take a step back and say, beyond your happiness, beyond a lot of these other things is really just getting you to a point when you could actually have the true capacity to say, what does it mean to be happy? Well, you can only answer that question if you know you're not going to really like die. I mean, you can answer it, of course, beforehand, but it's much easier to try to find who you are without having to worry about this idea that your body is a ticking time bomb about to die. So 
I think focusing first on life extension is the top priority. Everything else falls below that. And, uh, you know, I know that's not a very popular opinion, <laughs> um, but uh, unfortunately, because, you know, a lot of other people say, no, uh, the economy comes first or uh, overcoming uh, poverty comes first and, you know, overcoming inequality. And I, I agree with many of these things, but I also think at the ultimate stage that, you know, it's really life extension is a first priority. We must preserve our lives in order to honor everything else. Well, if we're continuing that same train of thought with, you know, Maslow's hierarchy and, and the idea of life extension, there is a lot of evidence to suggest that when people's quality of life improves, when they have less fear in their life, they tend to have less children, um, economies tend to stabilize. So I could definitely see how um, giving people this sense that they don't have to fear death as much or suffering along the way that it could actually result in less resources being used because there's less children being born and whatnot. Um, I don't know if you want to build on that. I just thought that was a very interesting connection. No, but it, it's, it is a great idea. And there's so many ironies out there. Oftentimes the stricter, you know, like tough love is a great one. You think, well, love should be unconditional, but actually I, I'm a parent. I have two da young daughters, a five-year-old and an eight-year-old. And tough love is a proven way to get those kids so they can become adults one day and make really good decisions. Even though you want to just love them all the time, really there's so much discipline that has to come in. And it's not easy to administer that discipline. It's not fun as a father, but that's really what, how you make kids strong so that they could one day be strong adults. And um, that goes very counter to this intuition of just like wanting to love unconditionally. But um, you know, then again, you're like, maybe the unconditional love is actually showing the tough love. And I think really that's what comes down to human beings and life extension transhumanism is the biggest goal right now is not this, these worries that people seem to have all over. Um, the biggest goal is getting the species to a point when the broad swath of society has access to life extension technologies, can live as long as they want, and then can decide really what they want to become. And, you know, that's sort of the core of the movement. It's philosophically, it's hard to escape that. I mean, I know everyone wants to worry about all these little things, Trump and this, Trump, that, you know, it's like, in the end of the day, I don't hear Trump. I only hear, I'm getting older. I'm one day closer to dying. My father died two years ago from his fifth heart attack. I'm going to end up the same way. And so are millions of people. Let me tell you the most important statistic that I tell people. If we can, as transhumanists, um, stop aging and solve death by the year 2030 versus, let's say, the year 2050, we can save one billion lives. One billion lives just in that 20-year difference. And as soon as we you know, stop people's aging and stuff like that, of course, their lives get better, they're healthier, they can continue doing what, things that they want. They can either work or they can do whatever they like. But the point is, it's really healthcare, and I don't mean healthcare broadly, but I mean health for oneself, longevity, these are the top priorities for anyone and everyone. And that's really what I dedicate all my time to, and this is really what the movement's all about. Do you feel your focus is more on uh, biological life extension, biological immortality, technological immortality, where you're uploading into a server or some kind of electronic avatar? Are, is there one of those particular paths forward that you're most interested in? So to be honest with you, when I go out on the campaign trail, when I go out and just, you know, lecturing, I, I never really take a favorite because I don't actually have a favorite yet. The truth of the matter is that um, nobody really knows which is going to win. So, you know, there's a couple of different ways to live indefinitely. The, probably the, the leading one right now would be through bionic organs or stem cell, you know, created 3D printed organs because, you know, most people die from organ failure. Uh, maybe it'll be stem cells, though, that, you know, will end up, re, you know, regrowing hearts and things like that. Um, another one is that, you know, um, we can, through genetic modification, genetic uh, editing, we can change our DNA so that we don't age. That's possible. And CRISPR is so brand new that we don't really know how big of a thing it can be. But that's great. Um, another one, of course, the more crazy science fiction ones, I love writing about these things, but is uploading your consciousness into a cloud and becoming some kind of avatar, 100% who you are. And maybe, you know, be a combination of a lot of them. Um, I'm not sure which one's going to win. I promote all of them because I'll take any of them. Any of them is better than none of them. Which one do I prefer? Well, to be honest with you, a little bit controversial. 
I prefer the one that's not biological because I think biology in itself is an imperfect system. I think biology is, um, you know, DNA and when you actually look at it, if, let's just say you were God and you had all the power in the world. Would you create uh, uh, an animal that needs to breathe oxygen to survive, that uh, can freeze to death, that needs to eat and use the restroom every day and these kind of things? If you were God and you're creating the perfect entity, you would never create a biological entity. You would create probably something much more machine-like, maybe more AI, maybe something that can span the convo, cosmos and things like that. So I think we have a lot more to evolve. And I, I see that in the near term, maybe it will be biological. Um, <clears throat> Uh, we can live indefinitely through biological means, but the future is digital. And beyond that, the future is going to be like kind of quantum intelligence and intelligence that, you know, the AI age is coming, but what people don't realize the AI age will probably only last 10 or 15 years before it upgrades itself to the next age. And we don't really know what that next age is, but it could involve quantum computing or something else, maybe something even molecular, subatomic intelligence, uh, intelligence and quarks and things like that. I don't know, but, I'm sure that it probably doesn't involve pure biology. That's kind of like the early version of intelligence in the cosmos. You mentioned your two daughters. What do you think the future really looks like for them? I mean, it, this time period potentially is such a massive paradigm shift in terms of the human condition. And it sounds like, I believe you said your kids were five and 10. Yes, eight, eight and five, eight and five. Eight and five, I'm sorry. Um, that they're they're going to be kind of hitting their strides as you know self-actualizing teenagers and young adults around the time period that you're talking about people potentially becoming immortal like what what do these ideas really mean for people's lives who are being born now and who are starting to just come of age it, it, it's so bizarre so you know the great question my wife and i my wife's a medical doctor the question uh, my wife and I always argue about or debate about, not argue, okay, we debate about it, <laughs> um, is should we uh, save for college for our kids, given the fact that Elon Musk and Brian Johnson and Colonel and all these other you know, entrepreneurs are now starting these essentially uh, brain implant companies or you know, neuroprosthetic companies where they'll be able to hopefully one day upload intelligence in almost a matrix-like style. And while we've already been able to communicate our thoughts through computers and whatnot, so there's no question that that will happen. The real question is, will it happen before my five-year-old gets into undergrad? And then will it happen before my eight-year-old does you know, a medical school, which of course will take a few other graduate degrees before? These kinds of things. So <clears throat> I actually tend to think that that technology will be close and that maybe my kids could become, you know, I don't know if they'll even be working anymore because we'll have robots that are doctors or whatever, but the point is really, do you save up for college? This is a real concrete question that parents have to deal with given the growing trajectory of technology in, in the world. And, you know, I, I don't have the answer. Uh, I tell my wife, Let, uh, let's not save up. <laughs> let's take the chance. Um, and she says, no, we must. Um, but I think kids are going to be, I think if you're a five-year-old today, by the time you're 25, it's going to be a completely different world. You won't, you know, driving will be like using fax machines. You won't even know how to use a fax machine um, because there'll be automated cars everywhere. Uh, they'll, you know, you'll, you won't actually have to maybe take piano lessons because you'll be able to download Mozart's Fifth Symphony and play it better than Mozart ever played it. Uh, these are the challenges that a five-year-old will face when they're 25-year-old. And if not when they're 25, then definitely when they're 35 or 45. I'm not 100% sure on the timelines of these technologies, but barring an asteroid hitting planet and or a world war or whatever, we're heading this direction. And so anyone that's, uh, you know, under four feet high right now has a very good chance of being a very different type of human being. And, you know, here I am in the real world right now. I live in a 1907 house in San Francisco and uh, I drive a car and whatnot. But uh, I think the majority of things that my children go through when they're adults will be quite different than the way I'm doing it especially as they have brain enhancements that connect them to the cloud and uh, they have Google maps in their mind and things like that. I mean, you know, it could be a very, very um, different world and it's very fun for a parent, but it's also a bit frightening. I was going to say, isn't there a part of you that potentially has some form of like emotional reaction to the thought of your daughters maybe leaving their bodies? I mean, that, a real possibility is that your, your children might become data in a, in a server. Like that's, that's what we're talking about here. That doesn't that hit you somewhere? 
Well, the, you know, there, there's this concept of the uncanny valley, uh, you know, when you talk about robots and then all of a sudden they become too human-like and it becomes too weird. And I, I have that hit me all the time. And, um, you know, uh, there's also this idea that people, you know, may marry robots and, you know, what if you, and I, my wife asked me one day, what if your daughter wants to marry a robot? Oh, I, you know, and, and, but wait a sec, maybe that robot's really going to be nice and, uh, you know, and offer the, you know, then you're like, think it through and all of a sudden, but our first reaction is oftentimes distrust of a new idea. But I think when you actually think about the real things that can come from it, you can get used to it. And that's, um, we're going to get used to as a society, some very radical things. The problem is that these radical things are happening so quickly these days. You know, before in the 50s, stuff would take, oh, three years and you have a time to adjust. Like everybody gets a car and everybody has a microwave now, you know. Now it's like the new technology hitting the market is like every three months. And uh, in fact, I was just uh, at the XPRIZE Foundation uh, talking about longevity and Kurzweil gave uh, a keynote. And the stuff he was talking about, the acceleration of AI, you know, it used to be like, oh, in 24 months, this will happen. And now it's like in three months, this will happen. Three months is not enough time to wrap your head around a new idea of how fast quantum computing, for example, can, can, can you know, improve and evolve. And it's just very radical. I don't, that's, I think, the biggest problem with humans right now is at some point, we may not be able to adjust to that kind of speed of rapid change. And in fact, that's why you see some people very much against transhumanism. It's not that they're against using technology to help them or improve their lives. They probably love technology and use it all the time. They're just overwhelmed and they're frightened. And um, I'm sometimes with them. I'm not perfectly optimistic about the future and I'm sometimes overwhelmed with how quick it comes and I have to constantly, I'm writing articles all the time and I'm, whoa, my, this has happened since the last time I wrote an article a year ago? You know, that's, uh, that's how radical these things are. How do we stabilize that vertigo? You know, how do people keep their heads above water in the transitional period that is happening so rapidly? We're, we're, we're talking a lot about, you know, 20, 30 years down the line and some very radical ideas about what's going to happen. But we're, you know, as you get closer to a singularity, the gravity increases. And we're kind of in that, in that flux of gravity that's starting to pull us very quickly towards that point. What are the, what are the steps now? What are the pragmatic options now for people to kind of maybe one, just benefit the transhumanist movement or two, just not lose their minds as we push forward so rapidly? Well, I, I think <laughs> the best thing people can do is just read the classics and read books because if you go back 500 years and try to understand history, then you can see how much it's changed. The problem, though, is that our lives are changing in the next 10 years as much as they've changed in the last 500 years in history. So I always tell people when they ask me, what can I do to not feel so weird? I just say, you know, try to read a huge diversity of the classics because what it teaches you is it doesn't matter if you're reading the Greeks or reading about World War II or you're reading about all these other different things. There's always been a huge plethora of ideas. There's always been this huge hodgepodge mix-up of craziness that humans are embracing. And our generation, actually, having not gone through a world war for so many decades now and some terrible times, um, we actually are living in a much better world than our predecessors did. There's really no question about that. I mean, virtually every generation before me has gone through wars or had to be in the military or had to fight things and lose resources. And, you know, my, my wife and I, it doesn't even occur to us that we would have to lose something like that to fight for it. I mean, we're, so we're living in much more peaceful times. We're living in times where there's a lot more prosperity. We're living in times where there's a lot more democracy. The world is good. If you go back and read some of the classics, you'll understand how complex and tragic it was at times. That helps people to understand that even though there's radical change coming through the future, as long as it comes in a democratic way, as long as it comes in a way that it, you're not enslaved by it, you're going to have the chance to opt out of it. And I, you know, I tell people this all the time. If Facebook bothers you, just don't use it. You know, I, I, I understand it, it's crazy. Just don't use it. And then people are like, all right, maybe they'll take a break and then they'll come back and then they'll use it in a way that's maybe better for them. But, you know, Facebook's a good example of a lot of the technologies that I think have started to overwhelm people. It's a <clears throat> very useful tool. Social media has done a great amount for connecting people. But I think also it's, it's brought in some of our demons. And 
we got to get better at dealing with those demons and we will, we will. We just got to adjust. So people should read all the classics because it shows you how crazy the timeline of our species is. And um, I'm assuming that even though our future is going to be really crazy and it's going to come more quickly, um, you know, we're going to be able to deal with it. So your, your uh, prep kit for the singularity is philosophy. Yes, yes, yes. I think um, reading is probably the very best. You know, I, I took a seven-year sail trip. Um, when I was working for National Geographic, many of those years were actually on a sailboat, and I used it sort of as my base. So, and I have my, my sailboat still in Greece right now. So I sailed from Los Angeles to uh, or Santa Barbara uh, to uh, the, Greece. And that's where the boat is. And I went across oceans and spent seven years doing that. And I think, ultimately speaking, I read a ton. But what I was trying to say is, I read all the time in the boat. I had about 500 something books, but I would, I would have traded the entire trip. Like I went through all these different countries. I would have traded the entire trip to have read the books. The books were far more important than the seven years of traveling to 100 plus countries. And that's what I'm trying to say is that it's reading takes us places, allows us to focus on things that we have not known to consider things from an armchair often. And that is great for our brain when it comes to dealing with brand new things like your daughter's learning Mozart through a chip implant, you know, and, um, that's the way I think we're going to adjust. It's just by becoming open-minded, understanding that all cultures, all generations have gone through their own sense of chaos. We're going to make it through this one. There's no question. In fact, this one will probably be easier. Yes, people have a hard time dealing with Facebook. Believe me, it's a lot, it's a lot more easy than dealing with, let's say, Nazi Germany or dealing with some of the other things. Like Generations before us have gone through some serious, serious stuff. Um, we're going to get through this, whatever craziness technology it is. I like the optimism and that reframing there. Um, I'm curious, do you, do you ever yearn for, you know, that technological absence in your life that you had on the boat? Seven years on a boat is a lot of vast vistas and, and freedom and uh, an escape from screen time. And that, that feels unimaginable now. So, you know, it is, it is. And especially now that I have kids and I work and, but you know, what's interesting about the sail trip. So I left when I was 21, it was 1994. GPS did not exist at that point. Um, or at least it didn't exist on the consumer level. Maybe the military had it. Um, so I sailed for the very first two years of the seven years um, through a sextant using the stars and the moon and the sun as navigation. And it's a very complex art to learn that actually. And it's art because you have to measure things and there's mathematics. It's very beautiful. But you always got to worry. You can never sail at night, like through passages, because you know you can't know where you are. So it's very complex sailing. You're very much limited. The moment you get GPS, you just plot yourself on a chart, and you can go anywhere at any time and not worry about it. And if your anchor is dragging, you'll know it because an alarm goes off. Technology changed my sail trip in a way that gave me a huge amount more freedom. While I missed the days of using a sextant and you know it was measuring the stars. Um, you know, to take a good sighting on a sextant can sometimes take 15 or 20 minutes. The GPS is on 24 hours a day, updating itself every second. I mean, it, technology makes our lives easier. And while some of the romance can be lost, um, ultimately, I wouldn't trade it in. I, I rather have the technology. And you can always go back to the sextant if you want to practice with it a little bit. But um, yeah, that sail trip changed dramatically once. Um, same thing. I didn't have an engine when I left on my sail trip because... Uh, I had an outboard I was planning on fixing on the trip and uh, I was unable to fix it because I didn't have the right parts. And so for two years, I went without a sail, uh, an engine and it was, it was fine. It was, you, you learn how to sail into harbors and I was on a small, small sailboat. You can sail anywhere you want. You have even the slightest amount of wind. And, um, but as soon as I got an engine, all of a sudden I could like go up rivers. All of a sudden I could do uh, fancy uh, parking on certain docks instead of having to anchor out a while. Technology, and this is just metaphors, technology just makes our lives easier, even if it takes away some of the romance. But the point about being easier is not that it's just like la-la land, you're lazy. It's that you have more time for other things. Like now you can be connected to land, to go on adventures and stuff like that. So I think technology, even if it seems boring at times, really makes us do a lot more complex things. It's interesting. If you lose that romance and gain time, you're just gaining time for more things that still have less romance. 
Do you know what I mean? It, it, do you think there is some concern? Because it, in my mind, I'm hearing you talk about, I took sail trips, which is exploring the external world. You loved philosophy and reading, which is exploring the internal world. These are things that are very like ambiguous and come with this almost, uh, you know, very romantic aspect to them. And these were the foundations of your character, it sounds like. But if you strip away some of that romance and speed up a less romantic version of life, are you gaining a lot or are you are you losing something there well it really depends on what you want to do and in my case at the time for example a lot of the sail trip i was working for national geographic and i realized what a lucky experience it was at a young age so i wanted to cover my stories and i often had deadlines so for me to be able to actually get somewhere quicker um and then be able to cover that story from a professional point of view was more important and now in my version, because, you know, like my father's died recently and, uh, you know, I'm now getting older, feeling age myself, I realize that there's no time for me to worry about what's romantic or what is more fun. What's most important is to overcome death, you know, with science and technology. And how's the best way to go about doing that? What, like to say, I think once we've overcome that, then we can reset this entire discussion and say, okay, now we want to decide what are the metaphysics of happiness, of a world without suffering? Is it too boring? Or do we keep enlarging our mind in the AI? Maybe that's really exciting. But until I'm sort of a slave to aging and death, I feel like I don't even consider this question of romantic versus non-romantic, happiness versus non-happiness. I'm sort of just a machine driven towards overcoming death because I know I love life. And, and, and again, it's, it's always because you love life. That's why you want to overcome death. If you didn't like life, then you'd be like, okay, whatever, I'll just either not stay here on planet earth or, you know, I'll, I'll just go surfing all day, whatever it is that you like. But because I love it so much is the reason I know I need to preserve it. So again, it's kind of back to that tough love concept. There's going to be 20, 30 years here where all I do is try to make the transhumanist wager, this idea that I'm putting all my energy and resources into overcoming death. Once I arrive at that, if I do, then I'm going to take a step back, maybe go back sailing with no, with just a sextant and say, now I can be this, this romantic guy who's maybe, you know, just wants to sit in the sun and read philosophy. That, that would be a great choice. Um, but, uh, you know, I kind of made a philosophical decision a long time ago that if I knew I was going to die, I had to do something about it. And that became an overriding priority until we can do something about it. So what's that look like for you then? If, if you're the spearhead of kind of a movement what what are some of the ideas that you lead with you know what what are the steps that you think are important for us to take as we move forward and push towards that what needs to change in our in our current socio-political models for your ideas to come to fruition well you know the most important thing that i do on a personal level since i'm not a scientist and you know um I, I think it's wonderful to be a scientist and that's, they're like the core of transhumanism, the core of the life extension movement is the scientists and the engineers and the technologists working on actually making us live longer. But there's a huge cultural component to this as well. You know, the National Institute of Health, which dictates, you know, the majority of the funding in the country towards science is not subscribing at this moment to anti-aging uh, ideology or anti-aging, um, you know, dreams. They're like, let's, you know, help out Alzheimer's, let's try to deal with cancer, all these other things. But we need uh, a really focused government and a really focused policy on specifically saying overcoming aging. Like, you know, at the X Prize, the prize that I tried to form, we had, we, we were 50 experts in longevity, got together at the X Prize Foundation two weeks ago, and they all put forth their, um, their best version of a prize. And mine was really on a longevity peace prize we need to convince the majority of America, which is religious and believes in an afterlife, that they need to put money into funding over for overcoming death. Now, you know, again, all 535 members of the US Congress say they believe in an afterlife. Uh, the president, the vice president, the ninth Supreme Court justice, everyone says they believe in afterlife. So why would they spend any money on overcoming death? Why would they even support transhumanism? Well, they don't. That's my job. And that's where, you know, I think a lot of the other kind of people of the movement that are trying to change the culture of America, the culture of the world. And that's what I'm trying to do. And the reason I want to change the culture is the moment that we can get, let's just say one day President Trump wakes up and says, you know, I, I really support the anti-aging movement. He's going to tell the NIH, give those scientists money to overcome death. 
That's, that's the dream. And of course, this is why <coughs> I ran for the presidency under this idea too, that, you know, if I was elected, um, you know, I, I, it was obviously not a, not a realistic possibility, but it was still a pretty fun campaign to run. If I was elected, the main thing we would be doing is not, not the main thing, but a, a majority of what I would be personally trying to do as the president is to put a huge amount of money into literally making every American citizen live dramatically longer, hopefully twice as long, put, you know, a trillion dollars into, instead of a trillion dollars, for example, into the Iraq war, let us spend a trillion dollars overcoming cancer, wiping out Alzheimer's, um, wiping out diabetes, you know, let's fight wars against biological disease, things that really create hardship in America, tear apart families, and cause an endless amount of suffering. These, this is really what I think a president should be doing. And so that's kind of what I'm doing when I go out and promote about, you know, transhumanism or run these campaigns, is this idea that politics is not about, you know, keeping the country's status quo going. It's really about protecting the health and the longevity of its citizens. That's what I want most from my government. And of course, government really doesn't do a very good job of that. And especially the National Institute of Health has virtually no money going into it. So, you know, that's really what I go around campaigning trying to do, trying to convince people that we should have the National Institute of Health. We should have government policy centered around anti-aging technologies. Even if you're a Christian or a believer or in an afterlife, you can still believe in these things. I mean, we're not saying you're never going to die. Maybe you will die. But we're saying that if the human body can be made to live 120 or 150 years, that should be a top priority of any national government. Do you think that narrative is going to shift when we do make more progress on these diseases and illnesses and through maybe some kind of implementation of a basic income of some form? I'm not sure how the basic income ties to it. I am a supporter of a basic income because I realize automation will take jobs and the you know robots and data and AI. I mean, there's no question that jobs are probably going to die off here in the next 10, 20, 30 years because pe uh, people can be, you know, machines can simply be better than people at most anything. Um, but I think, you know, what will turn the tide is really this idea that, this is controversial, but I think the idea that some of the religious people of America will start to embrace transhumanism as a way to share their religion. And I, it's not that I'm supporting Christian transhumanism, though, though I think it's, I do support it. It's just, I actually think what's happened, like, for example, with the Pope, the Pope has become much more progressive. And the reason the Pope became much more progressive is because there's a declining Catholic population around the world. So if the Catholic Church wants to remain, you know, one of the dominant players in world culture, it has to become more progressive. And I think the same thing can happen in American culture. I think very soon, especially the, the most important thing is when you tie into things like China, you know, China is a secular nation and they're incredibly doing well with transhumanist technologies, moving forward on AI. I mean, being be careful of the Chinese. They are going to become the world leaders if America doesn't step up to the plate in just a decade's time or even, you know, or two decades time. And this will, I think, be a stimulation for transhumanism uh, in, in America. Because, you know, I think uh, even if Trump and the, the administration and then, you know, people say, oh, this doesn't really go with our religious beliefs, falling behind China goes even worse. You know, and so I think, even somebody very religious like Mr. Pence or Vice President Pence will end up supporting genetic editing because the worst thing that can happen to America, at least from a kind of political point of view, is that we sort of lose our status because we were too conservative. So I think a good way to attack the, the, the problem of so many people not believing in transhumanism, um, and, and I don't even mean to use the word attack, but I think the best way to spread the message is really to say, look, other nations are going to beat us. So your best method is to retain your culture, but to embrace some of this radical science in it. And then you have the best of both worlds. And then us transhumanists also get what we want. I think this is the, the proper and, um, and probably likely outcome of the trajectory of the United States' uh, science and anti-aging kind of program, which in 20 or 30 years will probably be um, applying to all citizens, meaning that we will be living dramatically longer. People will embrace transhumanism as a whole, I think, within 30 years. It's like environmentalism. I often say the, the transhumanist movement is like the environmental movement, about just 20, 25 years behind. At first, when you said, don't cut down trees, people thought you were nuts. 
But, um, you know, it took a while. Greenpeace tied themselves to trees and did their amazing things. And then all of a sudden, people really believe in protecting the earth. I think the same thing's going to happen with transhumanism. One day, enough of this message is going to get out and it's going to click that it's nice to live longer. It's nice not to bury your parents. It's nice to have the people you love stay, stick around and not have to, you know, die on a sidewalk from a heart attack. I think that's going to hit people and say, you know what, this is good. Do you think that there's some credence to claims that maybe transhumanism is in its own way kind of a religion? Well, of course it is, <laughs> you know, because it has all the classic elements. Um, here we want to overcome death with a method, which is just like Christianity. And I mean, it's a sister in a way. It's like the opposite of Christianity, yet exactly the same in its methodology. And I think um, that's easy to convince as a religion. The only difference really is that we believe in the scientific method instead of faith. And, uh, but, you know, the, the outcome's sort of the same. We're going to become these godlike beings and live in harmony and live in love and happiness, hopefully, and all these other things. But I think ultimately, I don't look at it like that because I think that presents um, too many problems. We don't, you know, this is a science movement and the people that are behind it are scientists. So we like to stay a little bit more technical and stay away from the fairyland stuff. That said, you know, like I said, and I've said this before, if you don't work with the religious aspects of um, politics and the religious aspects of America as a whole, you're not going to make any headway. I realized this early on when I ran sort of a, a, some strong atheist thoughts through the program, you know, through, through my communication. And while I'm able to get a lot of the secular people behind me, it doesn't help that much to have 85% of the other people against you. You need to work within them. You need to say, this can be a part of your own culture. Transhumanism is not like uh, something, a religion that's going to take over your religion. It's a component that's going to fit really well within your religion. And it's just a philosophy. And there will be, uh, you know, even maybe born again Christians that really feel like ultimately maybe God's work is manifest through transhumanist technology. In fact, I think that's, you know, I, I'm, you know, even if I might be an, an agnostic or atheist person, maybe I will wake up one day and have a religious revelation and believe in God, I probably will still believe in transhumanism. And then I'm going to think, well, this was the goal all along was to see the science and technology helping humanity out, helping it live longer, helping it end suffering as, as, as kind of some kind of religious uh, experience. And if that's the way it is, but we all live longer, I think it's great. Is there a particular myth or barrier that you think is keeping people from being more open-minded tr to transhumanism? Like, are, is there something you hear a lot on the road that you would like to set straight or something that you're constantly like, oh, that's not really what we think, or that's not really what I'm trying to say? Well, it's a, it's a good opportunity to talk about the article that came out today. Um, so I had my very first op-ed in the New York Times out just an hour before we started this podcast. And um, it's about implants. I have a small implant in my hand. It can open my front door, send a text message, uh, all sorts of funny, wonderful things. And um, people are freaked out about implants because the Bible says, you know, be careful the mark of the beast. And they think implants might be the mark of the beast. Whereas I think an implant is great. I can go surfing without having to carry car keys or, or you know, or house keys. This is a, a great thing. Or my, my five-year-old can't take my keys and hide them or something. She used to do this when she was two or three all the time. And I think, um, you know, it's just, it's just a new technology. And, um, there's all this stuff that's against it from a biblical point of view, but it's all the interpretation that you have of that biblical point of view. I don't know if it's accurate in any real sense. In fact, what's accurate is that we've gone through multiple forms of new technologies that have come, and, uh, and they've, they've all made our lives better. And I think implants is just another one. And so the New York Times article actually explores some of these uh, points of view, and I was just really excited because, of course, the New York Times is is the New York Times, so it's kind of this uh, uh, vocal piece. Their op-ed section is, uh, you know, sort of been a global vocal piece for people that want to bring important ideas about uh, what's happening out there. And um, and I was excited the New York Times would actually take, allow me to write something about implants. Like, I think implants time has come is what they were essentially, the editors they were saying. Like, okay, it's time to have an opinion article. Um, what happened is there was a Democratic congressman 
um, in Nevada who tried to outlaw all microchips, including um, the recreational one that I have in my hand, meaning that I would go to Nevada and be a class C felon. And um, it freaked the transhumanist community out. So we kind of started protesting, sending in letters. Luckily, he changed the wording of the bill to reflect that recreational and medical implants could be allowed. But um, this is a danger that all states will probably have to pass some type of legislation, uh, regulation around implants because so many people are getting them. And we got to be careful that people don't outlaw them just because they feel it from a biblical point of view, it's the mark of the beast. <laughs> and I, we think, we, you know, I don't, have, I don't have this congressman on record saying that, but we do have him on record saying he was attempting to outlaw all implants and his original bill included language that would have banned virtually any kind of implant inside any human being for any reason. And, um, you know, uh, so the New York Times uh, article, you know, uh, explores that and defends the right to have recreational implants. And this is just a small transhumanism step to start putting stuff inside our bodies, but it is the future. And there's no question that, um, you know, over the next 10, 20 years, many of us will have things inside our bodies. It's important to have regulation out there that really makes it so that it's beneficial in a medical way and beneficial in a recreational way. You know, transhumanists believe in morphological freedom, which is this um, concept created by Max Moore, philosopher Max Moore. And it's, um, it's this idea that you own your body, you have a right to do to your body whatever you wanna do, so long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. And of course, that means getting recreational implants. And so we have to be careful that, that lawmakers don't um, try to make it so that we can't have those things. I mean, it seems like maybe a small step, but also potentially a major precedent to set uh, as we move forward. So I'm glad you guys were able to make that progress. Are implants something that you see as maybe an important stepping stone right now or a technology that you think is really good to focus on? Or is there any technologies that you're especially excited about right now in terms of their potential to help kind of drive the movement and drive the conversation? Well, I think implants are very important because of the, the, the cultural reasons. So very few, let's say, fundamental Christians and, you know, who sort of kind of dominate America's landscape to some extent, especially politically or whatnot, would be against uh, a heart transplant. You know, or would be against an artificial kidney, or uh, you know, or, or even maybe an artificial hip, or whatever it is. But for some reason, many people are against some of the things like vaccines or implants or things like that because they see that as an intrusion into in, to their to their world, their body. And so, implants have become sort of, I think, what you might consider the battleground for this transhumanist versus the religious right controlling how we deal with medical stuff in our bodies. But the fact that implants largely are recreational at this point, I mean, I mean, obviously there's many more medical ones than there are recreational ones, but the fact that it's kind of more like, um, you know, uh, there's these, uh, you know, sci-fi movies where people, you know, are being modified eyeballs and stuff like that. The biohacker world is really catching on quickly. And I think there will be a lot of citizens citizen scientists doing a lot of different things to their bodies, whether it's genetic editing or implants or different types of things here in the future. And that's very exciting to me. I'd want to do a lot of the stuff myself, body modifications. But if they stop us, that means then the culture has been, you know, so you can see the implant debate becoming sort of similar to the abortion debate in terms of, of, you know, national fervor. When I was driving around the country and people knew that I was campaigning for US president and I had a chip implant. People were like, he's the antichrist or he's, he could become the antichrist. You know, it's, I don't know why it is a tiny little implant freaks people out, but I think it does it for revelations and biblical reasons. So implant is sort of ground zero when you're talking about um, a lot of the ideas of where the battle is taking place. Like I said, it's not taking place over bionic hearts. It's taking place over this little tiny thing you put in your bit. And that's also because it's, it's used for identification. It, it's a privacy issue, but it is a very important battleground. And so <clears throat> I think it's very important to fight for it because we're not just fighting for this little tiny thing to put in our body. We're fighting for a culture that's going to say yay or nay to radical modifications. And this tiny little implant is the very beginning of that battle. I think if we win this, um, and that's really what the New York Times piece is about, um, is that everything else, the transhumanist era will follow. 
then people say, well, okay, let us put anything in our bodies. Uh, I, I know it sounds strange, but that's why I was so excited to have this piece of the New York Times because <clears throat> it lays the groundwork for a much larger um, follow through of the transhumanist community. And the fact that New York Times would allow me to publish it in favor of uh, you know, body modification with implants is very important. And especially highlight the fact that an elected congressman actually tried to literally outlaw it outright. I mean, this is, we're setting our, every state's gonna have to decide on this, but we're setting ourselves up for, you're gonna start hearing about this through the next two, three years. It's gonna be everywhere. I think people are gonna discuss, what do we do? Yeah, that's amazing. I'm very happy to hear that you're being, that you're able to put that conversation uh, at the forefront right now because that could start a lot of conversations around, you know, the water cooler and at the pubs and getting people talking about this stuff in a much more realistic way. And talking about it is really the most important thing because I think you need to talk about something for a few years before you actually accept it. And uh, <clears throat> that's really an important thing too. I, I think right now, all people know from chip implants is from sci-fi movies. And of course, it's always used in some dark, nefarious way. Whereas, you know, the way I use it is, is really great. It's just like I can go jogging without having to carry a key in my hand all the time. Or I can go surfing without having, you know, and, and, or you can pay, you can hold Bitcoin on it. You can send text messages. It can show your mood. You can share your news stories with it. I mean, it, there's a huge amount of things you can do with it. Um, and, uh, and I think, you know, ultimately it's also going to act very soon as a payment device where you can go to Starbucks, swipe your hand. And pay. Now, the problem again is all these privacy issues and whatnot. But, you know, the privacy issues and that difference between the thing in your phone and the, you know, the, uh, the, the phone in your hand and the chip in your hand. So we'll get through it, but it takes articles like this. It takes, you know, legislation that's favorable. And it takes, you know, the transhumanist community standing up for what they believe in. Um, and I think eventually we do this enough times for enough issues. And then we'll start hitting the mainstream where it'll be more cool to be a transhumanist than to not be one to be against science and technology will be like why would you do that you know and i think of course a younger generation like my kids use the ipad use the iphone at age one they were uh, 11 months my uh, youngest daughter was able to already start watching and knows how to function youtube and stuff like that and uh, you know um a new generation is going to grow up very technology much more natural to them than it is to these lawmakers who are sometimes 70 years old trying to pass bills because they think, my God, you're putting implants in people, you know? So it, it, it's, but you know, that's how culture moves and uh, hopefully America will stay on the right side, the reasonable side of science and technology. Yeah. It seems like it takes a little bit of appreciation for momentum and how slowly it can work sometimes. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but do you have any, closing thoughts in terms of policies or projects you'd love to see people support or that you're working on right now? Well, I'll just talk a little bit what happened at XPRIZE. Um, you know, uh, we were there. I, I got lucky and sat next to Peter Diamandis. And, um, you know, they're putting together, uh, there's a $100 million fund for longevity that's been put together and they're trying to create some prizes around it. And the prize that I tried to devise was called the Longevity Peace Prize for somebody who kind of does the most activism or, uh, you know, um, uh, regarding longevity, but the, the prize that I specifically put together is one I would love to see. It's who can get any major government or major governmental body to accept and use this policy that aging is a disease. And you've heard Aubrey de Grey and other people say that aging is, is a disease and should be classified as, as, as a disease. And I firmly believe that. I think if we could convince a government like the National Institute of Health to see aging as a disease, as opposed to just some kind of natural phenomenon, billions of dollars would flow into helping overcome it. And nationally, a culture would start to change. So one of the big pushes a lot of transhumanists, including myself, are trying to do is trying to get governments to, to start thinking that way. And maybe one day to even say, like, imagine the UN declared, you know, that, you know, like in their, in their, um, national in their bills and stuff like that, that all of a sudden aging is a disease. It could change the policy worldwide. And this is a really important one. It's just how we word things, how we interpret things, to not see death as something natural, but to see death as something that can be tinkered with, modified, controlled, turned off, and overcome. And 
as soon as people start thinking like that, venture capital starts flowing into it. Once the venture capital hits, once the billionaires get involved, then you're on a 10 or 20 year time window before this stuff is fixed. And that's really been the great thing is, you know, you do have a bunch of very wealthy people, a bunch of very wealthy corporations now investing a lot of money into life extension because they see not only can they make money, which is great, but they can also help humanity at the same time. And I, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a Nobel Prize out there for the people who end up figuring out actually how to overcome aging and all this other stuff. I mean, we're talking about saving millions and millions of lives for those who, who don't want to die. And I'm, I think it's a fantastic. So I'm hoping the X Prize will take on something like the, the Longevity Peace Prize for these kinds of things. But um, we are where, one of the, I guess one of our main goals is to try to get a government to declare aging a disease and to use that as a kind of a, a, the poster child of what a government should be like. We care so much about America's or about your, the citizens of our country that we're now going to spend a lot of our resources trying to make it so that you can live as long as you'd like. That's a future I can believe in. Zoltan, thank you so much for taking the time and for your efforts. I really appreciate this conversation. Oh, it's been really great. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, man.